Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy that finally, we finally made this happen. Thank you, Mike Phillips, for joining me. We've been working for months and months to get this together. But welcome, finally, to Mindship Podcast. Well, thank you, Glenn. I appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me, even though my ADHD brain kept forgetting. <laughs> no, it's good. We finally got it together. Uh, and, and in the meantime, we've been messaging back and forth. We've been chatting. And I've obviously followed you on Twitter for a long time. And I knew we were on to a winner because just looking at your pinned tweet here, you say on your Twitter thread, you say, I was a Bible teacher slash translator for over 36 years. I've deliberately left behind the church. So I have certainly a residence there. But then you say, but I still love in all capitals to teach on this account. I often teach on trauma, IFS and EMDR therapies. I also like to do sex educating. I will never stop teaching. It is what I do. So I can absolutely mm-hmm. resonate with all of the above, except I'm not a therapist though. But I'm a teacher. I'm wired to be a teacher. I can't stop right. teaching. So it's in our blood, I think, isn't it? Well, you do a great job on this podcast of teaching. And I know that's what you're trying to bring across. You bring teachers on mm-hmm. and you let them tell their story. And I appreciate that. Yeah. So speaking of stories, we obviously have connections. You were an evangelical. We mm-hmm. just, before we hit record, we were chatting about some of the kind of common threads coming out of the church mm-hmm. background that we were in, which I'm sure will come up in your story. So maybe you mm-hmm. can take us through it. What is your story in terms of how you were in evangelicalism and how you then got out? Right. So I, my story started in the cult. I can, if I can go just a couple of steps back, I had a lot of trauma as a child, sexual trauma abandonment trauma my parents abandoned me when i was four into the into the um system because uh, my mother ended up in a mental institution my father was an alcoholic and couldn't take care of us so my brother and i were both placed in foster care a lot of a lot of abuse there uh came back to our family of origin i had actually had a, a really interesting family my my dad was an atheist what i call a militant atheist he loved to argue with religious people mm-hmm. and he would he would not stop he had an eidetic memory so he would just quote all of these famous atheists from history and he would have all these arguments all laid out in his head and he would do it and people would just be stumped even you know uh, very eloquent pastors would just be mouths open i love that i love watching him do it mm-hmm. my mother was a spiritist she channeled spirits for people um, it was an interesting combination. I was going to say, yeah, uh, core atheists and a spiritist. Yep, they were they were hippies. Um, they had an open marriage. They they practiced an open marriage quite freely. Uh, we had people living with us, so we had kind of a commune type home that I grew up in. But during those times, I also went through sexual assault from very from babysitter and from somebody else. So by the time I was twelve, I was I had suicidal ideation. Tried to take my life, stepped out in front of a truck. The truck uh, swerved around me, and I, I, that was at 12 years of age. And I was, I was like desperate to find something. And to our door came uh, a group of people with a magazine called The Plain Truth. And they, um, they got me involved in their group. And they were a very loving group of people. I have to say that about them, mm-hmm. uh, the Worldwide Church of God. Mm-hmm. And I got to know them. But I knew something was off, and I stayed with them for about a year. And then my brother got involved with a Baptist church uh, near us, and they were a Baptist church that had a whole bunch of hippies going to it that were part of the Jesus People movement. And I really resonated with that. It, it just—it was just like my parents, only a religious version of them. And I, I just got really heavily involved in that. About the time I was 16, my dad uh, got lung cancer. He was a smoker. He got lung cancer and uh, passed away. But during that time, a uh, pastor came and, and presented a, uh, a version of Christianity that he accepted. They thought that it was, it, it was valid. And so 
I started going to the same church that he did. So did my sister, my brother. Finally, my mother, my mother gave up spiritism, sort of. That's a long story. Uh, yeah. Started going to the same church. And it ended up being the church that I went to for several years. I was intending to be a doctor. I was in pre-med. I was actually finished pre-med. And I wanted to take a year off just to, before I went to med school, just to kind of gather my senses in a lot of things. There was a lot of depression I was still struggling with because of trauma. And I went to a Bible college connected to that denomination that I was, that we had started going to. And while I was there, I met my wife, but I also really just loved the culture of this particular college. It was in the middle of the prairies of Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. um, the cold tundra, as I like to refer to it. I think I and know I, which one you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I couldn't, there's a number yeah. of them. You have Prairie Bible Institute. That's, and, that's but, what I thought you were actually, talking about. No, no, it was Canadian Bible College. Oh, time. I see. It's now, right. Okay. Now called Ambrose University, but it was Canadian Bible College. And I decided to stay for a second year and then decided to get my degree in languages, in ancient languages. And so I did. Uh, became um, licensed with that denomination and was intending to be a missionary. We, have, we were actually assigned uh, a posting in West Africa, my wife and I. We were going to be doing mission work, but it was mainly translation work with uh, one of the people groups there. And so we were just about to go to the Toronto Institute of Linguistics um, when our oldest son, our yeah, our oldest son at that time, uh, got juvenile rheumatoid arthritis really severely. They thought we, he, they thought he would lose his leg. We had to have a number of uh, very significant uh, therapies done. Mm-hmm. And the mission decided not to send us overseas. They thought there was no way that he could get any kind of treatment. So that we would, let's just wait it out. So we went and pastored a small church in the mountains of British Columbia near Banff, but in the, on the BC side of the, the British Columbia side of the border, they sent us to this little tiny church, about 20 members. They figured we couldn't hurt them. They had been 20 members for like 30 years. Mm. And uh, very, very nice, very sweet group of people. It was supposed to be a temporary posting. And, and while I was there, it was a hippie town. Uh, we didn't realize it, but it was still my same roots. It's kind of the... the can't get away the from G- it. Can't get away from it. A lot, <laughs> yeah. of, a lot of drug use in that town. And I started doing a lot of counseling with people and realized I love counseling. And so I started uh, doing some, uh, getting my master's degree down at the University of British Columbia and, and with Northwest Baptist uh, College. Uh, and at the time, all these hippies started coming to the church, which was culture shock for these poor old saints, mm-hmm. you know, who'd been going to this church forever. And it was their church, right? I mean, it was oh, yeah. practically like the ni- 19th century, you know, we paid for this pew. What are you coming into our church for? Right? Long hair and everything else. Do you remember, this is a funny memory, but while you're talking about this, there was a, a musical thing back in the 70s, but I think it was Jimmy and Carol Owens. Remember that? Oh, yeah. it called, it's called oh, Show yeah. Me. And it was all a story yes. about yes. the staid congregation in any town USA and a bunch of hippies move into the park down the road and they come to the church. Right. You know, so I was just thinking, you're, you're straight out of the musical. Well, it, it's the same thing that happened with Chuck Smith's church down yeah. in Southern California and even some of the things that happened uh, with other churches down there where all these hippies got saved or became Christians, came off the beaches in their mm-hmm. Hirachi, Hirachi sandals and tie-dye shirts and sat in the balconies and, you know, just were totally in in love with Jesus, so to speak. And mm-hmm. these three-piece suit tied, you know, squares, tied, yeah. tied to fundamentalism people didn't have any clue what was going on. Yeah. And that's, I know this is not the story, but that's where a lot of the Christian uh, contemporary worship and Christian rock comes right. out of, isn't it? Because I played in Christian Mar- metal bands. Yeah. I played yeah. in Christian metal bands for years in Seattle and we traced sure. our roots to that type of era with Larry Norman and all those guys. Oh yeah. We actually opened for Larry Norman in, in Portland. That's my oh, one wow. claim to fame, you know, Storm wow. and Norman. Yeah. So right. Randy Stonehill, world. Larry Norman, yeah, second yeah. Check Resurrection Band, yeah. all those guys. Res- we used Res- to see them every year in, in Seattle. Yeah. So that's right. all part and parcel of that time period, isn't it? Well, and that's my story. That's the group of people that I was, uh, mm-hmm. that I was part of. And a lot of the writers of that era, a lot of the people that were, speaking to that group of people were the ones that I was reading. And a lot of the people that came to our church were that, that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the church went from 20 to about 200 
in a town of 1,500. Yeah, that's pretty steep growth. And I really, honestly, this is Clint, This is where my story starts to diverge because I began to realize that Christianity had a lot of flaws to it, uh, logical flaws to it, uh, cultural flaws to it that I couldn't buy into. Mm. But I felt stuck. Now, I, I need to mention something else. One of, I've been diagnosed uh, many years later with reactive attachment disorder, which means that because of that early, those early days taken away from parents and everything, mm-hmm. the, the need for community is almost obsessive. It's manic. And I'd found community. And every time I'd find community, I would overlook things that I should not have overlooked Right. to stay part of the community. And I, right. I have a theory. I've just been developing over the last five years that this is the majority of the reason that people go to churches. I mean, mm-hmm. they will say that they pick a particular church because of the doctrine, but I have a feeling that they pick the church because of the people there, and then they adopt whatever doctrine it is that that group mm-hmm. adheres to because they don't want to. They don't want to be kicked out. They want to. Don't want to have yeah. to leave. It's a syncretistic thing, isn't it? I remember reading an article oh, yeah. on that subject a few years ago, and it was a study where they went through several churches and they basically did a survey of the theology of the average pew sitter. And they found right. massive divergence. There was not a oh, yeah. sort of a, you know, one size fits all theology that everybody adhered to. And they were shocked. You know, it was like, wait a minute, this can't be right. Everyone's supposed to believe the same things, you know, but as you say, the exactly. need for community may outweigh the actual doctrinal belief system. Oh, very much so. And that, that would be true of every cult is, or yeah. the, the groups that are called cults. Um, I, I think that that word is probably misleading since I think mm-hmm. a lot of religion and Christianity is called like, but yeah. going back to my story, I was, I was getting, I'd gotten two years finished of my degree in counseling and I was trying so hard to get the third year finished because I had to, it was 14 hour drive down to Vancouver. They didn't have online classes at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was going back and forth for a week at a time. It was just getting really hard to do. And so I kind of abandoned the third year uh, and just concentrated on these 200 people, pastoring them. And I honestly was getting to the place where I was getting very frustrated about Christianity altogether. So many of the movements within Christianity were, were toxic. And I could tell the more I took, the more I studied psychology, I realized that psychologically Christianity was messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just decided that I, I wanted to leave there. I, so I, after seven years of being there, my wife and I moved down to Montana, and I was thinking about finishing my degree at the University of Montana or even Seattle Pacific. I had put out feelers to both universities to see if they would allow me to finish my degree there, and U of M was really interested in that. So I moved down there. While I was down there, a mutual friend asked if I would come and help out this group of people. They were a church that had been about 350 people. They'd had three splits, two splits, and, and another thing happened. And so I just came and did some pulpit supply. I just preached every once mm-hmm. in a while. And at the same time, I re- was starting to run into the, to the machinery of getting licensed for, as a therapist in Montana, which was a lot longer process than I thought it was going to mm-hmm. even though Montana has less requirements than most states. So I ended up doing some part-time work as a pastor in this church, about 50 people. Um, once again, I didn't think I could hurt them terribly badly. Uh, going through a lot of my doubts and fears. And while I was doing that, um, that, that church started to grow. And I mean, I'm a good communicator. I, I'll say that. I'm a good communicator. I was going to say, yeah, there's a connection there for sure. The other church grew, and then now this other one's growing. Yep. And I, I stay away from some of the things I don't believe. I've never believed in hell. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in inerrancy of the Bible. I never, I guess I did for a couple of years while I was in Bible college, but I, the more I got into translation work, and we can maybe talk about that mm-hmm. this time or another time, the more I began to get into translation work, I realized that the broad uh, deconstruction of a sentence, whether it's from Hebrew or Greek, you can make any, any, translate, any sentence say anything you want because of the variation of translatable words. And I, I just got to the place, we don't have an absolute lexicon from the first century or even from the fifth century BC. We don't know what these words mean. We think sure. we do, mm-hmm. but we don't. And, and we can take the dozen or two manuscripts outside of Christianity and compare what they said and the context they said it in and say, see, this is what it means. 
But what about the other thousand manuscripts where the word may have been used differently that we just don't have? Mm -hmm. We don't know what we don't know. And for me, that was enough to say inerrancy is a moot point. We don't have the original autographs. We don't have any of them. We don't know what the words meant to the original people. So we can't make any definitive statements. So I got rid of inerrancy. I got rid of hell. This whole idea of original sin just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Mm. So I preached on things that didn't have anything to do with those three. Yeah, just and stay people, away from the topics. <laughs> basically, I, I preached good psychology. Right. But maybe not good Christian theology. <laughs> uh, I had a lot of people that were kind of would do this. They kind of look like this guy's a little strange, isn't he? Mm. And I my wife will tell you, I tried so hard to work to get out of that job. And I finally did get some of my third year done. I honestly never did finish my third year. But but in Montana, that was enough. I had enough hours to get licensed, mm-hmm. enough, uh, clinical hours to get licensed. And I started just doing full time therapy. And a lot of my clients started coming to the church. I, I didn't, Uh-oh. I don't do evangelism, never did do evangelism, but they just started coming to the church. All of a sudden the church is 400 people and I don't have time to finish my degree. <laughs> I look, I look at my wife and I go, I don't want to get this. I am, it's a fine mess most... you've gotten us into. <laughs> right. That, actually, that should be the title of my memoir. It's a fine mess. Yeah. And during that time, the church got involved in something called the Toronto Blessing. I don't know if you oh, yeah. had ever heard of that. Oh, yes, I have. Very much so. We studied it in seminary and pneumatology right. class. And then I've read lots of stuff on Wimber and those guys that came out of that right. movement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was talking the, about. The, the whole leadership of the church got involved in it. I, I kind of tried to stay on the, on the sidelines. It's not something you can stay on the sidelines with. It, mm-hmm. It's totally enveloping. Uh, there were these signs and wonders and miracles supposedly happening. Yeah. I, I'm enough of a, of a skeptic to kind of ask questions afterwards. And people were wondering if somehow I was the biggest problem in the church. And I was because I, I would ask people, I said, so you said you got healed from this. Did you go to the doctor? Have you got it checked yeah, out? Verified. Right. Can't uh, ask you those kind you had, of questions. No. And I tried doing it, but I would have people just getting angry, but the, because of, what was happening in the church. Now we had seven, 800 people and I didn't want to have anything to do with it, to be honest <laughs> with you. I was trying to get out of it. And so I started, I figured the, this is going to sound subversive and it kind of was, I decided to teach on some of the things that I knew other Christians weren't teaching on, on sexuality, uh, on LGBTQ issues. And people started saying, um, you can't teach on those things. I mean, that. And now, so let me set that aside for a second, because what really got me involved in trauma therapy was I, some of my clients who had been going to church all their lives started coming to me and telling me they'd been sexually abused by pastors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them actually by the same guy. And ironically, the dormitory that I went that was named after uh, this guy was the dormitory I lived in in Bible college. Mm. By the time I was started to investigate his shenanigans, his his crimes. Yeah, really, it is. He had been dead for about 10 years. And mm-hmm. so we ended up finding 33 victims. He was a youth evangelist, 33 victims, some of them horribly raped. And they would go to their churches and their churches would just shove it under the rug. They would not believe them, all sorts of things. And I went to our denomination and that's when I began to get involved in victim advocacy at that point and mm-hmm. i began to find out more about trauma began to find out more about my own trauma i was going to say yeah Realized, there's obviously a connection there and it's especially relevant in light of as we're doing this recording now just shortly uh what a week or so ago now the right. report on the southern baptist convention came out yeah. and that's right exactly what you're just saying except it's the southern baptist this time but it's a pattern that's exactly. repeated denominations and the catholic church and everything else isn't it it is and so the word got out that i would i would believe victims and so i was getting at least one phone call a week from someone who wanted to come and make Mm -hmm. a disclosure at the same time there was a lawyer in billings montana by the name of ken sandy um ken i had met ken through a, a couple of friends and he said i want to help some of these victims he had heard that i was doing victim advocacy he said, I want to help some of these victims. Some of them just need to have uh, their day in court. 
and he said, uh, but the courts aren't necessarily going to listen to them. That was true, by the way. It, it still is in mm-hmm. some places in America where, uh, you know, only 5% of cases where women were raped will ever come to trial because the assistant district attorney won't do anything about it. The police will, won't do anything about it. Uh, the church certainly won't do anything about it. And so women just stop talking about the abuse or even men that are abused mm-hmm. won't talk about it. So Ken, I think I know that Ken's heart was right in the right place. He formed an organization called Peacemakers. And I don't know if you, it's a, if that's one that you'd ever no, heard of. No, I haven't heard of it. But Peacemakers was designed to uh, give a, a legal uh, avenue for victims to come forward and tell their story to a, basically to a panel of people who aren't involved in the situation, who, who had legal standing within the courts to come and basically do arbitration. Mm-hmm. And so that we would we found people from all over the state of Montana who were willing to come and be regionally part of these arbitration boards who would hear it and then would either recommend that it go to the court or recommend that some kind of arbitration, some kind of uh, financial remuneration be given, mm-hmm. especially paying for trauma therapy and other things like that. And it went really well for a while. Uh, and in fact, peacemakers still exist all across the United States. There are groups that are training for it. Ken had to pull back from doing uh, working with sexual assault victims. Though, uh, it basically, it's become an organization that does a lot of um, arbitration between uh, church members who have financial dealings and that kind of thing. Right. He just found that the whole idea, the whole concept of of sexual victimization, just got too big. It just got too hard to to validate. Yeah, it's too much to deal with. Yeah. And churches were sending him, were threatening him. It was just awful what was going on. I pulled out of it earlier than he did out of that area of it. But I, I also began to say, listen, if you're a victim of sexual assault in a church, I want to hear from you. In mm-hmm. the 11 years that we were doing this in Montana, um, I, I worked with over 100 victims of, of assault, worked with the church, tried to work with the churches. And in all of that time, with the 100 victims that I worked with, only two churches acknowledged their role in those in the victimizations and and those two churches uh helped to pay for the therapy for the victims disciplined the members brought them to the police both of them right so actually did the right thing so putting it in context the southern baptist convention report is not even not even nothing new this is going back you must not have been absolutely surprised at all when the report dropped it was all just stuffy from your own past well, the Houston Chronicle had a wonderful series uh, yeah. about three or four years ago, no, three years ago, where they they collected a lot of the information that the guidepost study did was collected originally by Robert Downen and others for the um, for the Houston Chronicle. They did an amazing yeah. job. And if and it took, wasn't for him, it pro- the, the SBC probably wouldn't have commissioned the investigation in the first oh, place. Oh, they never so would have. That says um, a lot right there. Right. And I have to be frank, I... I mean, I can't, you know, I'm not a prognosticator of the future. I don't, I think they'll do what every denomination does in this situation. They will uh, send it to committee. They'll have a, they'll do a study commission to look into it. The study commission will bring back some recommendations. Those recommendations will be voted on. I'm going to guess most of them will be voted down. What will be left will be a very uh, truncated, um, you know, version of what should be done. And victims will once again look at this and say, nothing was done for me. Yeah. Nothing was acknowledged. It's true, which is some of the victims have said it's gone on for years and years and years. Oh, yeah. And I've already seen the strategy that you just laid out because there was a, an interview with him on NPR's Fresh Air just the other day. And he said, yeah, because Terry Gross asked him what's going to happen mm-hmm. now. And he said, well, they're already saying, look, it's such a loose coalition of churches the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't really have any authority to enforce such um, principles across the denomination. Now, right. ironically, if, if you're an LGBTQ affirming church, you can find yourself no. booted out of the Southern oh, Baptist sure. Convention in a New York second. But if you have yeah. a sexual predator in your church, that's that's somehow OK. You know, so. Right. Right. Strange, so the Southern it? Baptists like to claim congregational independence when it suits them. Exactly. But but when it doesn't sit and when they want to make a case out of a church, they can easily remove. Them. I mean, that's not a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I can get cynical. And I, I, I mean, I don't want to go any further with them. They're not my denomination, but they represent what most denominations do. And I hate to say this. I mean, everybody wants to say, well, not all Christians do that. Not all churches do that. But Clint, my experience is most of them do. When they, when they find mm-hmm. out that a victim is in their church, there is a, there's a pathway that is followed. And that pathway almost always has the number one goal of protecting the existence and the reputation of the church way beyond trying to help the victim to recover from what's happened. And that, that just bothers me every day when I work with a victim. Mm-hmm. I, I had to take a number of years off of working with victims because it just, yeah, I got burned out from it. I can imagine. We're seeing that, like you say, in the Southern Baptist thing, the, the one thing that comes out of that report for sure is that they had a desire to avoid lawsuits and mm-hmm. to protect the reputation of the denomination more so right. than the rights of the victims and the suffering of the victims and bringing the perpetrators to justice, the actual offenders, in some cases, mm-hmm. multiple offenders, uh, 700, at least that we know of as far as the report goes. So yeah, this is nothing new, unfortunately. No. It's not going to go away, is it? No, it won't. It won't. I mean, I don't know if you've talked on, on your program about DARVO. Is that a, have you talked yeah, about that? Yeah, someone just brought that up the other day, but I was going to bring that up and ask you about that because that, that's what happened in the in the case of the Southern right. Baptist, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So it stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and, and offender. So what happens is the, the whenever a pastor is accused or a church leader is accused, doesn't have to be a pastor, almost always, I would say 100, almost 100% of the time, they'll deny it. Uh, it, it's just the standard. Yeah. It's not, just, by the way, the standard technique of church people will do it. It's the standard technique of offenders. They yeah. will almost always deny that, that what they've done. When they can't deny it anymore, uh, and many times the, the proof is there, somebody was told about it or somebody saw what, something of what happened, then they'll go on the attack against the victim. And they'll begin, begin to say, you know, you, you led me, you were dressing provocatively, you came into my office one day and you're the one that, I mean, it, it goes yeah. on and on and on, but it, it's an attack. Uh, and the attack, especially when it comes to church leaders, the attack almost always comes down to, you're a tool of Satan trying to destroy God's church. Mm-hmm. Which we heard from the Southern Baptists. It's a tool of Satan to right. distract us from evangelism. This is the whole thing. It's what it's all about. I, so I can't you tell go. you how many times I, I was in one meeting and this is public knowledge so I, I wouldn't be revealing anything but i was in a meeting where a school it was a christian school and the 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 principal of the school he used the same technique to abuse eight different girls within the school i mean it was a horrible abuse mm-hmm. and the the school was operated by a church so it was a, a church had this particular school so they brought it to the elders of that church uh, several of the families brought it to the elders of that church they called our organization and we came to investigate the all the stories were credible. And the first thing I said in the first public meeting is, how come nobody has gone to the police with this? I mean, I just assumed that they had gone to the police. And I found out that they hadn't. So before the second meeting happened, uh, two of us that were part of the the uh, group, we went to the police and we contacted the uh, police and, and then they contacted the ADA and asked that an investigation be done. And he was arrested. Mm-hmm. So before we even had the second public meeting, he was in jail, as, as it should have happened right from the beginning. Yeah, We went to the second meeting, and the very first thing we heard from about 10 different members, you are a tool of Satan trying to destroy our church. How could you do this? How could you do this to our beloved principal? And I'm, I'm sure those girls all just got together and got high on marijuana and made up this story. Mm-hmm. They were trying so to bring like, down a man of God. Right, the man of God and the you know, and yep. we've got to save this church. And so the pastor called for a special privilege and put me out of the meeting. The three of us that were there put us out of the meeting, put the families of the girls who were accusing the principal out of the meeting. And during his special privilege, they voted to remove all those families from membership. Oh, classic. Yeah. Dispensing of existence. So, yeah, back right. in the cult psychology. Well, it's, and in many cases, it's it's actually state law, isn't it? Whether or not it is proved to be a, a credible allegation, that's not for the person to decide. No, that's it's not for the for to authorities, isn't it? It has to be reported. Because I can right. remember when I was training to be a pastor that when the state of Oregon, that was one of the mm-hmm. things that we talked about in seminary, you know, the mandatory right. reporting laws. If someone comes to you with a credible alle- with an allegation, right. you have to report it. 
You can't There's just no suppress choice. it. Yeah. So that right there is illegal in on that level for sure. Absolutely. We'll be right back with the second half of this conversation with therapist Mike Phillips. We're going to get into the rest of Mike's story. We're also going to start talking about religious trauma syndrome. What is it? What is trauma in general? And more specifically, how can you treat it? And of course, Mike, if you follow him on Twitter, you know that he's a big advocate of EMDR and IFS treatment therapies. Now, if you don't know what those mean, Mike's going to do a really good job of breaking down what those mean. And we're also going to get into resources that are available for you if you suffer from religious trauma syndrome, as so many of us do. It's actually a complex thing, very complex trauma syndrome. So we're going to get into that as we finish the second half of this chat with Mike. But before that, I wanted to give you a quick update as to what's happening here. The next couple of episodes that are coming out here on the show, I have a conversation with my good friend Dean Krosatz. We caught up a couple of weeks ago, and I've had him on the show before. And of course, he used to run a podcast called The People I Meet. I've been on that a couple times too. He's a great guy coming out of Pennsylvania, but he has a really fascinating backstory. He was involved in a massive ministry down in Houston, Texas, years ago and walked away from it all. He was a musician in churches and played in gigs all over the country for some fairly big names. So we're catching up with Dean, finding out how his life is being rebuilt, reconstructed after leaving Christianity, I should say really charismatic Christianity behind. And then I've got a conversation with ex-Mormon Luna Corbden. We had a chat the other day and we talked about Luna's backstory coming out of Mormonism. And again, some of the resources, how it fits a cult. And the fascinating bit to me is how we can compare our stories, me coming out of evangelical Christianity and Luna coming out of Mormonism. How do those two sort of religions compare and contrast, especially when you start talking about cult psychology? And this is something I think Mike mentioned in this episode is that, you know, cults, how do you define a cult? Is it by orthodox beliefs versus unorthodox or heterodox beliefs? Or is it actually more about systems of influence and systems of control? And that's what Luna and I are going to be talking about in that conversation. I've also got a chat coming up too with Carrie Noble. That one was done a while ago. And we talked about his experiences in a group called the CSA, the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord. This was a group that was operating out of Arkansas back in the 70s and 80s, and he was an integral part of it. He was one of the leaders of the group, and it kind of turned into really a cult whereby they got into kind of a racist, white supremacist ideology. But in addition to all that, it was wrapped in Christian theologies. So we're going to hear from Kerry on his story, a fascinating story about his experiences in the CSA. And in fact, speaking of which, there's a segue there because I mentioned in that episode not long ago, if you've been following the news out of the States, there was a group of people called the Patriot Front and they were arrested up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They were trying to break up a pride parade that was going on up there. And the fascinating bit is as I've researched that story, of course, these guys are militia groups. They're wrapped in Christian nationalism, which is, of course, something that we saw in great detail around the January 6th insurrection. We saw Christian nationalism. We saw militia groups. And we also saw a good scattering of QAnon stuff in there as well. And it was all one big toxic mess. Well, I've since revisited the subject of Doug Wilson, who runs basically a cult empire out of Moscow, Idaho. And I think some of the guys arrested there were tied to his church. I'm not sure about that. I'm going to research that some more. But in that process, I've been talking with some people who track what he's doing out of Moscow, Idaho. And some of these guys are evangelicals, but they're very concerned about what Doug Wilson and his cohort are doing. And there's another guy called Jeff Durbin. He's out of Arizona. He runs a church called Apologia Church, and he's affiliated with Doug Wilson. And so I've been doing a lot of research on these guys, and this is a fascinating kind of a rabbit hole because my connection with them was, of course, through Christian Reconstructionism. Doug Wilson and these people are what, what they call theonomists. In some way or another, they're kind of like a reshaped version of R.J. Rushdoony's uh, Christian Reconstructionism. 
they they want to institute some form of Old Testament law for society, but they've kind of distanced themselves from some of the more objectionable parts of Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstructionism. They're very sly. They're very sneaky as far as what they do. And so I've been in touch with some people who are experts in this field. So look out for an episode coming up at some point here on Doug Wilson. We're going to revisit that. If you haven't heard the episode that I did with Mark Potok, he used to work at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We did an episode a couple years ago on Doug Wilson and his cult empire out of Moscow, Idaho. But now his reach is expanding. He's got sort of like tentacles, like an octopus in so many areas. He runs a seminary. He runs a school. He writes books. He's got his own publishing company. He has a lot of stuff that goes out to Christian homeschooling in terms of curriculum. So, you know, so he's got a massive reach. He's connected with groups like the Cross Politics Show, the podcast. He's also been instrumental in starting an organization called the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, the FLF Network, and the guys on Cross Politics are always pushing this. They've got a big conference coming up in October, and Doug Wilson and a bunch of his cronies are going to be speaking at this thing. So they've got a lot of stuff going on. So at some point, we're going to be doing an episode, maybe two, on these guys, Wilson, Durbin, some of the other people in that orbit, just to kind of keep you aware of what's going on in that world. So this is kind of my current project. This is what I've been working on the last few weeks in between going down to Cornwall on holiday. The other thing I was going to mention is that you can become a supporter of this show on Patreon. The links to that, as always, are in the show notes. That gets you access to the closed MindShift podcast Facebook group, as well as the MindShift Zoom calls that we're going to be starting up again here in September. We're going to have Mike come back in at some point. We're also going to have Carrie Noble and I think Luna Corbden as well. So the calendar for September, October, November of this year is already starting to fill up with returning guests. And that's a great way for you to meet these people that I've had on the show. So that's a great benefit of being a Patreon supporter of the podcast. All right, let's get on back into this chat with Mike Phillips. We're going to finish up his story and get into religious trauma syndrome and how you can get some therapy, some help, some resources around that as we continue to take a look at this issue of good psychology, bad theology, and Mike's work as a supporter of church victim abuse advocacy. Just to kind of bring this around, I got to the place where my own trauma was getting so great, I could not continue to do victim advocacy. So I actually went into treatment. While I was in treatment, I began to realize that there were some, I I had been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, as most people would know it, Mm -hmm. which I I have high respect for. I think for non-traumatized clients, counseling clients, it's a wonderful technique, mindfulness and other things. For traumatized people, talk therapy can sometimes make it worse. And so when I started in 2000, when I started going through therapy, I recognized that the new therapy methods, the new methods that were coming out to deal with it was something I wanted to learn. So I ended up getting certifications in EMDR uh, in, in internal family systems and somatic experiencing. And the, the restoration that I found from my own mind became something I wanted to introduce to my clients. So we ended up moving to California uh, to further the education for that. At the same time, the denomination of which I was still part asked me if I would mentor a young man who was planting a church in the Sacramento area. So I did, came alongside of him. Um, After a while, though, he and his wife decided to uh, plant a church. And so there was a congregation of about 160 people, and, and the denomination asked if I would temporarily take over as the pastor. Oh, I can see where this is going, Mike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number it's three. Same, <laughs> same story. Three. Let me guess. Think, it grew to like a thousand people and you weren't no, even, I didn't get that even trying. Didn't get that <laughs> no, but it's about 400 people and we were, and I, I just kept hiring people to take over and they would go off and plant churches. And so it ended up, and I, I kept looking at my wife. Finally in 2014, I said, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't believe, I, I was to the place where my, my beliefs were so divergent. I was, I was so um, heterodox from Christianity that I, I couldn't stay anymore. Mm-hmm. And during that time, my district superintendent came to the same conclusion. And so yeah. he ended up, before I could quit, he ended up firing me. So, wow. but, I, but I said, what am I supposed to do? It, to, a, to a certain extent, I had sold out over the years to become a therapist. 
I, sorry, to become a pastor. Um, I, I'd sold out even become a therapist. I should have gotten more accreditations along the line, more licensing along the line. And I'm now 57 years old when this happened. I thought, I can't start a new career. I mean, I didn't even have enough clinical hours in California to be a paid therapist or to be a mm-hmm. licensed therapist. And in the midst of this, they said, well, you have enough training and enough experience. And they actually hired me as a domination as a therapist. Oh, that's so ironic. So I was licensed. I know. It was. <laughs> Hugely ironic. And they said, would you work with victims of, of assault? Would you work with pastors who have, you know, gone through these things where, you know, and they, they were, to the credit of the domination, they were starting to recognize something different needs to happen than what mm-hmm. has happened. And I won't get into that story. It's too long. Uh, there's reasons for it, and a number of therapists have, in our denomination, we're calling on them to stop ignoring, especially our mission schools, the kids in the mission schools. Every one of our schools had dozens of these uh, victims, uh, these missionary kids that were victimized, mm-hmm. and some of them have written books, and I, I won't, you know, go into mm-hmm. that. But in the midst of that, uh, I was this therapist. Uh, some somebody came to me and revealed the story of Ravi Zacharias. Mm. Um, she was his primary victim and she had been seeing another therapist, still was seeing another therapist. And so I, I decided to go to bat for her. Steve Bauman was a man I didn't know at the time, but he had done exhaustive research on what, on what Revia Zacharias had done. Oh yes. I remember seeing his videos on YouTube and think while Zacharias was still alive, he was trying to call attention to the allegations that were coming out even then. Right. So I went to bat for her and, and backed up Steve, went to our denominational leadership, had friends in the national office, and they just refused to believe it. They refused to acknowledge. I mean, all the facts were there in the court case, um, and all they wanted to do is attack her. All they oh, wanted to yeah. do is take, take her story apart, saying that she, her husband and her had sued another pastor years before, which was a totally different situation and, by the way, totally justified. In what they had, I won't go into her story, but in the end, they basically said, Mike, you have one of two choices. You will stop talking about this or you will lose your license. Wow. And, and your place. And this was where my retirement was. Um, yeah. It was to the place where I, I finally said, uh, you're going to have to do something about it then because I'm not going to stop talking. Well, that's when Ravi Zacharias passed away. It was literally that month when I was deciding he passed away. And since that time, all of the other things that he's done with the massage parlors and yep, so it on, all came uh, out. it all came out. The denomination was was curiously quiet. They didn't take my license away. But finally, in this last year, we came to the place where I said, your views on sexuality, your views on LGBTQ, your views on the Bible are just, I, I can't, I can't tolerate it. But, but they... They didn't want to kick me out because they knew that the whole thing with Ravi, it would look like they were kicking me out because of what I did with Ravi. So they said, well, we would like you to go back to one of our churches. And I said, no, no, no I, chance. As, 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 unless you guys are willing to acknowledge what happened with Ravi Zacharias and willing to pull away from Christian nationalism, which unfortunately, like every evangelical denomination, they were hijacked by it. I, and I won't go back to one of your churches. They said, then we're removing your license. So they eventually removed my license on the pretext that I wouldn't attend one of their churches, even though there are dozens of retired pastors in our denomination that don't. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's the long and short of where I ended up. So are you now a therapist in the state of California? Are you licensed as a secular therapist? No, I'm not licensed in California. Right. I am right. licensed in Montana. I'm licensed in Montana. Okay. But right. I, do te- I do telehealth. And I am certified to do telehealth, so I, I do that. I wish yeah. I could be in California, but the cost to me to get just licensed is, yeah. oh my goodness, it was just too much. And I can, I'm, I can legally do it uh, through telehealth because I have a license in another state, so I right. can do that. Uh, but trauma therapy to me is, is what I always wanted to do. I have found some great colleagues and, and paths that I do it with. Uh, a lot of my clients now uh, are coming to me with religious trauma syndrome. Which I believe you've talked to Marlene mm-hmm. Monell, and and uh, you know she's explained it so much better than I could. But I, I've yes. seen that trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter what it is that traumatizes you; it 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 changes your brain. Yeah. Well, you were saying before we hit record, we were talking about Marlene Monell and RTS, 
What's your yep. unique perspective on it? Because you did mention, okay, trauma is trauma. A person can be traumatized by a number of things. But what mm-hmm. is the difference between that and, let's say, religious trauma syndrome? What is it about specifically religion as a traumatizing factor in right. these people's lives? Sure. So all tra- let, let me start with what trauma is. Trauma is any event or relationship that negatively impacts the uh, development or proper function of the brain. That, that's literally the definition of trauma. Yeah, that's, yeah. So that can be so many different things. Over the last 15 years, the, the idea of complex trauma has come into, and complex trauma is simply a way of saying that not, there isn't just one event that, that caused the brain to, be, to malfunction. It was, it was a series of events, maybe small events, but they added up to a malfunction of the brain. So here's what happens within religious trauma. With religious trauma, a person becomes codependent with the church, codependent with God even, Mm -hmm. because of course God's relationship with us is based on the idea that we are broken from birth, that that God despises us, that that we we have no place with it, that we are rejected by God. Mm. And only because of something that Christ did are we allowed to have any relationship at all, but we are still completely dependent upon God. And it's a complete codependent relationship. It really the, is. The problem with the codependent relationship gives nothing back to the individual. It, the, mm-hmm. the giving all goes one direction. Nothing comes back. But they are told that they got something from God. They got salvation. And you'll understand the full benefits of it after you die. Yeah, yeah. You'll get there and, eventually. And what you have in the meantime is this wonderful community of people and you have to trust them and you have to trust the leaders and you have to trust the process and you have to trust the doctrines and you have to trust the Bible. And you cannot doubt any of it because if you do, we will take away the only thing that you have, which is community. What role does Christian therapy play in that model? Because someone just commented the other day on Facebook, a friend of mine from the Netherlands, right. and he said, the problem with Christian therapy is, you know, it's, it's all scripture is sufficient for even biblical counseling, so-called biblical right. counseling. Because right. the model, biblical counseling. Yeah, the model that I was I was raised with, and I went to Bible college, we did an intro to counseling class, and the teacher sure. said, basically, it's about uncovering your traumas in your past, and then at that point, the Holy Spirit will heal you. And that's how right. it kind of works, you know, because the Bible's sufficient, it has everything you right. need it, for life and practice, and even counseling. Sure. So, so that's called newthetic counseling. Jay Adams mm-hmm. came up with that term, newthetic counseling. And the idea is that you can apply scripture to your problems. And by believing those scriptures instantly, miraculously, your brain changes. Mm. And just by believing the right thing, your brain changes. The problem is it creates a situation, basically the, Scot- the, you know, the Scotsman fallacy, the, the ultra Scotsman fallacy. The idea is if, if you aren't healed, it's because you didn't believe enough. Right. You didn't have enough faith or yeah, unconfessed right. sin. It could be anything. It could be anything. But never if God's you didn't fault. believe that scripture, it's never, it's never the church's fault. Oh, no. So you can't be a truly, truly healed person if you still have these symptoms. And you have these symptoms because you're not believing. Because everybody who believes the scriptures will be healed. Mm. And if you're not healed, it's because you didn't believe the scriptures. Yeah, it's your it, fault. it creates even more trauma. So yeah. it, it creates a situation in which the, the brain attacks itself. It begins to attack itself. I mean, how much is enough belief? Is it like a tire pressure that you get it up to 34 pounds and now, now you have enough belief? How do you measure it? Well, there's, there's no metrics that you can use, right? There's, there's no way that you can validate that you believe enough so you keep trying to believe more and then there's something else you have to believe and of course these scriptures are usually taken out of context they usually just dropped on top of you because that's what nuthetic counseling is Mm -hmm. it's simply individual scriptures taken out of context taken out of their original language that and translated who knows what it means and given to you and you have to fully believe it without any doubt and by the way that's not possible the, the, a number of studies have been done that show it is not possible for the brain to accept something without doubt because our brain is not a single solitary unit. It is made up of many neural pathways, many neural networks that, that function independently of each other, or relatively independently of each other. Mm-hmm. Our brain is made up of parts. There is no way for, for you, what you believe in your prefrontal cortex to say, I believe this, 
to have nothing that opposes it. Right. It's not how our brain works. And so because a person knows that their brain doesn't fully accept this, and they're told you're not a true Christian if you don't, it sets up religious trauma for them. Because now I cannot succeed. I cannot be good. I cannot be acceptable to God. And, and these things rummage around inside the brain. And when the person wants to leave or they want to express their doubts, they are, they are further traumatized because the community begins to pull away from them. And when you have completely sold out, the only thing you have in this world is community and a promise of God's acceptance when you die, and then it is removed from you, you have nothing left. Yeah, it's very, it's very soul-destroying, isn't it? Well, how much of this all relates to, you mentioned the cultic psychology aspect of it, or as Amanda Montel might say, cultish, it's cultish, you know, because, you know, I'm thinking about you as you're describing that, this issue of that, you know, suppressing of our authentic identity, you know, to to take on the religious persona, which is what you just described. I I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. It's all Mm -hmm. true even though it just doesn't work. And eventually if you finally break down under the pressure, the cognitive dissonance becomes too much and then you get shunned and disowned. So that's got to be a huge part of the story of why people have religious trauma syndrome too. It is. It is. So it it becomes a complex trauma because it's happening over a long period of time. There isn't one event in, in those years that somebody's involved in religion that says, uh, this is where I got traumatized. And so people don't even look at it as trauma until they begin to realize my entire brain shaped itself around something that I thought was a reality and now has no, has no reality to it. It's a balloon that burst. It, it, had, it looked big, but it was a balloon that burst. And There's now I there. don't know what to My brain can't shape around it. So the, the whole idea of a cult, traditionally people like Walter Martin and Hank Hanegraaff and, and others yeah. defined a cult by certain doctrinal uh, differences are unique. So if you were orthodox, if you fit with whatever that means, because everybody has a different definition, mm-hmm. but if you were orthodox, then you weren't a cult. And if you were heterodox, that is you were different from that, you were a cult. Yes. But now as we begin, like, like Steve Hassan and others have looked at it, that it isn't so much the belief system that differentiates whether something is a cult, but it is, the, it is their behavior. It is the activity. It is the dependence upon somebody in leadership it's a dependence upon you cannot think for yourself you cannot believe for yourself you have to accept a a hallowed book you have to accept our interpretation of a hallowed book and that always sets people up for abuse it it doesn't even have to be sexual abuse it can be religious abuse it is a Mm -hmm. sense of you have to believe me and if you don't believe me it's because you're apostate Mm. It's so ironic because as we were talking about before, I was raised on Dr. Walter Martin. I used to listen to the Bible Answer Man every single day on the radio. Fridays was my special day because it was like a sermon or a talk that he would give. He he would debate with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And those were the big, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, enemies, as you say, because they weren't they were not classified a cult in terms of their systems of control their undue influence and all that it was because of their belief system so i would argue with mormons i would argue with jehovah's witnesses i never once considered that i myself was part of a system that was cultish at all well and i and i didn't either and that's what bothers me even to this day as i look back at my own religious trauma that not only was i bought into it but i was perpetuating and so i i mean i've gone back to so many of the people that I brought into church life and I said, listen, uh, I, I want you to think for yourself. I, I have to admit, this is the direction that I steered you in and I steered you wrong. And I, I want you to mm. be able to think for yourself. And I've tried, some people have been very thankful and a, a number of people who are, you know, deconstructing have come back to me and said, well, we appreciate some of the things you're saying. And that's why I want to be very vocal about it and say, listen, I don't think anybody thought all this up. I don't think there was one person who said, let's destroy half the world with Christianity. I don't, mm-hmm. that kind of, I don't think there's a conspiracy. I, there are conspiracies within Christianity. Oh, sure. I, don't, I don't think that the original concept of Christian doctrine was one of them. I think it evolved to the extent that people like to control other people because we feel safer if we have other people under our control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my girlfriend's always saying that it all boils down to control. What about mm-hmm. the issue of therapy then? What have you found in terms of your treatment model that does uh, have some effectiveness for treating RTS and other forms of trauma? Mm-hmm. 
Right. The two the two uh, therapies that I utilize the most are uh, EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And what that does is it it helps the brain to reprocess memories that are are still in a you know, basically in a rudimentary form. And I I could take it would take too long mm -hmm. to explain it, but simply there's a little walnut shaped organ in the middle of your brain called the hippocampus. And when you're going through a traumatic event, it, it shuts down. And the hippocampus job, among other things, is to integrate the left and right hemispheres of the brain together. When it's working, you can reprocess. So you can look back on a memory and say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's why this guy did this. And this is why I did that. But in a traumatic memory, the two hemispheres don't communicate to each other. The, the memory was never processed and they stay in these threads, mm -hmm. you know, uh, emotional thread and uh, auditory threads and, and visual threads. With EMDR, we can safely put back together the two hemispheres so that the person can then go and reprocess the memory and can actually come out of it without being traumatized. Uh, we do this a lot with people who are in war situations mm -hmm. uh, who, whose brain is, is still reactive to, to noises or to to sights or to certain emotions yeah. will just get them triggered. But triggered, what I've yeah. done, what, yeah, PTSD. what more PTSD, exactly. Mm -hmm. And we could get into probably a whole podcast about PTSD. Oh, yeah. It, it's not what people think it is. It, it's actually a chemical, uh, it's a chain of chemical reactions that happens in the brain. Anytime the brain is impacted by anything which changes either its development or its proper function, that is trauma. And the longer trauma goes untreated, the more chance that PTSD is going to happen within the brain, which is basically, it's just like a disease that keeps the trauma alive for the person over and over again. Mm -hmm. With religious trauma, uh, EMDR has some effectiveness because with some people, there are major events that need to be processed. But, but generally, for a lot of people, it's just a complex trauma of a lot of small events. And what works better, I found what works better is uh, internal family systems, IFS, uh, which helps the, the person to be able to come to grips with some of these divergent parts of their psyche, which even back during the days that they were going to church, there were doubts, there were fears, there, were, uh, there was a sense of injustice. All of these different parts are still reacting all the time inside of them mm -hmm. and have never been listened to. And so their body begins to be affected by it. Their emotions are affected by it. And they don't even know why. And so with IFS, we have found ways to help a person find a taxonomy of all these parts, understand which part is which, and come to a sense of peace within themselves. And the religious trauma starts to just fade away at that point. This is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I could talk for hours. I think we're definitely going to sure. have to come back around. And okay. we, we we need to get into the cult psychology aspect. We need to right. get into some of the other things, but I'm aware of the time. Are you still yeah. taking on clients? If someone wanted to get a hold of you, what would they what would they have to do to contact you? Well, what I would say right now, I've got a full client list and a waiting list. Um, by the mm. way, that's not unusual to me uh, during the mm. pandemic pretty much all the therapists in the world became overloaded just because people, this pandemic is traumatizing. It's, it's right. a societal wide trauma. And at the very same time, between 2013 and now, uh, over 50% of the therapists with, in America retired or came, sorry, wow. came to retirement age, whether they retired or not, I don't know, but they came to retirement age and there aren't enough therapists coming up through the, through the, uh, the schools to replace them because of how expensive it is to get trained as a therapist. So we're, we have a shortage, but here's what I would suggest. If people want to follow me on Twitter, what I try to do every day is put up enough understanding of IFS, enough understanding of EMDR, so they can at least start reading up on it. They can get into somebody's program about IFS or, or EMDR and, and hopefully see a therapist on their own, but at least they'll get some of the information that I put out there. My, uh, can I give my Twitter handle? Sure, yeah. It's at SACWriter, S-A-C, like Sacramento, writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, SACWriter, all one word. Right. For some reason, when I first followed you, I thought it was like sacred writer. That's what I thought you were. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've, oh, right. I've never been that. 
I've never been there. <laughs> I think we can safely dispense with that one for sure. But yeah, Pretty so much, the yeah. first protocol, Twitter, would you recommend books like Marlene Winnell's Leaving the Fold? I mean, that's another Absolutely. good sort of yeah. protocol, isn't it? And there's it's a lot a, of other books. Book. Yeah, Take Back Your Life by Yanya Lalich and other books are really good. I would suggest uh, two books that, that maybe aren't uh, read as much by um, people with religious trauma syndrome, but they'll, they'll really explain what has happened. One of them is um, uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing book. And it explains why people are having so many uh, autoimmune reactions in their body. And a lot of it's trauma. And a lot of it's religious trauma. Uh, it's amazing that that people who ident- self-identify as Christians have more um, existent, more problems with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome than any other subgroup in culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a mother-in-law second, had it. She was an evangelical for you know until yeah. she died. And she it's had incredible it. how many do have it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the sec- the second book is actually an older book, but it's one that I recommend. It's called uh, the The Brain That Changes Itself by Dr. Norman Doidge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it introduced to uh, psychology the idea that of the plastic brain, that the brain can actually heal up from just about anything. If you give it the tools, it can heal itself. Mm. Great resources. Well, listen, thank you so much. This has been oh, way, way overdue, man. This will not be the last time for sure. I'm, I'm hoping oh, that good. we can get you back for a MindShift Zoom call because I'm sure the people in our group would love to chat with you and pick your brains oh, as well. Great. So I'll, I'll put that out to you. We'll, we'll throw some dates okay. around, see if we can come back for that as well. So thank you so much, Mike. It's been way thank too you. long, but we finally connected. We finally made it happen. That was fun. Thanks, Mike.